Good evening. A man surrenders near the United States Capitol. He claims to have had a bomb. The chaos in Kabul continues as U.S. jets buzz the city. Anti-war activists speak out on the military-industrial complex, the vaccine booster controversy, and Cuomo punts on clemency. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, August 19th, 2021. A North Carolina man who claimed to have a bomb in a pickup truck near the U.S. Capitol surrendered to law enforcement after an hours-long standoff today that prompted a massive police response and the evacuations of government buildings in the area. Police didn't immediately know if there were explosives in the vehicle, but authorities were searching the truck in an effort to understand what led the suspect, identified as 49-year-old Floyd Ray Roseberry, to drive onto the sidewalk outside the Library of Congress, make bomb threats to officers and profess a litany of anti-government grievances as part of a bizarre episode that he live-streamed for a Facebook audience. The standoff was resolved peacefully after roughly five hours of negotiation. The Capitol Police Chief, J. Thomas Mann, spoke with the media. Just moments ago, Floyd Roy Rosenberry from Grover, North Carolina, was taken into custody without incident. Mr. Rosenberry had parked a truck and was sitting in a truck for several hours in front of the Library of Congress. He advised that he had explosives. Over the course of time, we tried to negotiate with uh, Mr. Rosenberry. We first started doing that with a whiteboard, just writing messages back and forth. We used a robot to get a telephone down to him, but he would not use the telephone. But shortly after we had delivered the telephone, he got out of the vehicle and surrendered. And the tactical units that were close by took him into custody without incident. We don't know if there are any explosives in the vehicle. It's still an active scene. Mr. Rosenberry has been taken into custody and has been removed from the scene. We still have to search the vehicle and render the vehicle safe. So we don't know as of yet. And that is the police, the Capitol Police chief speaking earlier today. As police continue negotiations, videos surface of Roseberry on Facebook Live inside the truck, which is stuffed with coins and boxes. He threatened explosions, expressed hostility towards President Joe Biden, profanely warned of a revolution, and laid bare a series of grievances related to U.S. positions on Afghanistan health care and the military. And meanwhile, the Taliban violently dispersed scattered protests for a second day today amid warnings that Afghanistan's already weakened economy could crumble further without the massive international aid to sustain the toppled Western-backed government. U.S. Army Major General Hank Taylor is Deputy Director of Joint Staff regional operations. He says U.S. forces are ready for anything as thousands clamor to get out. But our service members in Kabul remain agile, professional, and are postured to continue mission and to respond if required. On this topic, as we look at the last 24 hours, F-18s from the Ronald Reagan Carrier Strike Group flew armed overwatch flights over Kabul to ensure enhanced security. We maintain a watchful eye and are continuously conducting in-depth assessments to protect the safety of Americans. We will use all of the tools in our arsenal to achieve this goal. And that's U.S. Army Major General Hank Taylor. Taylor and Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby address this question. Is the United States buying jet fuel from the Taliban? How are you fueling your planes, the C-17s that are going out? Are you now in a position that you have to buy fuel from the Taliban? Um, the 
assets uh, on HKIA, uh, on the airfield, are uh, what we need uh, to maintain the operations, all operations, to support the mission. So that's a no, you're not buying fuel from the Taliban? There, there's there's um, plenty of fuel sustainment capability at uh, Hamid Karzai uh, Airport. And as you know, Jen, we also have the ability uh, of our uh, on our own, our logistics ability to, to fuel our aircraft as needed. And that was Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby. Andrew Coburn is Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and author of the forthcoming Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. He says the real winners are the defense industries that made a trillion dollars off the war. The Taliban won since they're, in, they're back in charge. But also, I'd say the military-industrial complex in the U.S. won. I mean, they really achieved their principal objectives, which was to make a huge amount of money. A trillion plus, as we learn. A trillion dollars. What was that money used for? Our military grows more efficient all the time. And so, whereas in the old days, to spend that amount of money, even not quite that amount of money, in Vietnam, we had to send half a million people. Now we can get the same bang for the buck with just 100,000, which is, you know, I think the most we ever had in Afghanistan. And that wasn't for long. So where did all the money go? Well, I remember once talking to... John Sobko, who was the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, the truth teller all these years, not that anyone paid much attention, he said a lot of it, a lot of the money never even left Washington. You know, a big fat contract would be awarded to a favored contractor, and then they'd put it in the bank here, and then they'd, well, they'd cream off 15, 20, 30%, and then subcontract the work to someone else who would then subcontract it to another person in Afghanistan who would then and down the chain. So eventually whatever pennies were left would be spent on some rickety building that no one ever used anyway. DynCorp, huge military contractor, they got billions and Subco would cited one contract to build a police state. They got money to build a police station somewhere in the Afghanistan, and uh, they got $73 million for that. And when someone went and looked, the thing was already falling down. They built it on a, on a sand pit or something. And so <laughs> it was already collapsing. And, you know, that across the board, that happened. Huge money spinner. Is this typical of just how big nations, going back to the British Empire and before, did business with their arms manufacturers? Or is there really a decline of the American empire to that degree? Or is it some combination of both? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the naval arms race between Britain and Germany in World War, before World War One. that certainly has echoes of this, where the, the object was to greed by the Navy, Royal Navy and the German Navy, you know, to jack up their budget and also by the shipbuilders. But I mean, we've taken it to a whole new level both in terms of the colossal amount of money we pour in and about the really miserable return. At least the British and the Germans got a few serviceable battleships out of it. Now, the most notoriously, the F-35 fighter plane, where it's going to cost a trillion and a half dollars over its lifetime, keeps failing its test. The last report from the Pentagon testing office said it had, I think, 850 unresolved shortcomings. 10 of which were serious enough to cause death, presumably to the pilot. Where does this go from here? I don't think progressives should sort of simply cheer all this. It means we just have an incredibly ever more corrupt system which will viciously defend itself. I mean, there are huge sums of money at stake here. You think they're going to give that up easily? No, we have to recognize what the problem is. We're ever going to do something about it. I don't agree with people who say, oh, that's great. They're pissing away all this money on, you know, useless weapons. We're dealing with an ever more 
corrupt regime. I mean, I have to recognize that. Educate people for a start. Scream at whoever you get to vote for, who you might have voted for, saying, how dare you ever vote yes on any kind of military appropriation. Don't even think about it. Demand show trials. Just this last week, this fiasco in Kabul, I guarantee you no one is going to get fired. Biden was right to do what he did. I don't blame him on this. <laughs> blame him on everything else, but not this. On the other hand, let's fire General McKenzie, head of CENTCOM, who's always saying we should go to war with Iran. He was in charge of all this. It's his screw-up. He should be fired now and down, down the chain. No general ever gets fired for incompetence anymore. One telling sign of the rot in the system. So should we, we should be screaming for that. And that is... Andrew Coburn, he's the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and author of the forthcoming Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. And the Taliban have sought to project moderation and say they want good relations with the international community, but they'll face a difficult balancing act in making concessions to the West, satisfying their own hardline followers and suppressing dissent. A United Nations official warned of dire food shortages and experts said the country was severely in need of cash, while noting that the Taliban are unlikely to enjoy the general international aid that made up most of the ousted government's budget. Anti-war activist Kathy Kelly had these comments. Well, I believe that the chaos that people are experiencing right now is uh, very frightened and alarmed. People have tried to go to the airport as rumors swirl, as people learn of abuses of human rights that are happening in various provinces across Afghanistan. I, I think this is what happens when People declare wars and fight wars. The United States, I believe, has tremendous responsibility and accountability for what's happening in Afghanistan. But we ought to all recognize war isn't over when it's over. The, these traumas are ongoing and afflict people terribly. But I believe the United States does have responsibility to assure that every person who feels vulnerable and wants to leave Afghanistan is enabled to do so. One of the arguments in support of the U.S. occupation and during the time they're there, they bring Western lifestyle, quality of women, building new nice glass modern buildings, uh, running water, all these kind of things that seem better when the U.S. was there than when the Taliban, the so-called uh, medieval religious fanatics take over. Well, I think we ought to recognize that 41% of the children in Afghanistan are stunted in their growth, that one in three girls suffers from severe anemia, that the occurrence of severe acute malnourishment affects one in every 10 Afghan children. I'm not saying that health care is great in this country, but we don't usually consider that part of Western understanding of a fair and a decent life. The idea that the United States was in Afghanistan to create a better life for Afghan people was never borne out. The United States, I believe, was there because they wanted to have bases strategically located where they could have an influence on other countries such as China and Russia and possibly control trade routes and resources. You know, now I think President Biden is saying uh, we don't really need those bases. We can use drone operations, surveillance drones, and over-the-horizon capacity. The Air Force has asked for $10 billion to be able to maintain its capacity to continue surveilling and bombing Afghanistan. That $10 billion is greatly needed for humanitarian concerns within Afghanistan. Do you think the U.S. is going to learn anything from this? 
the military industrial complex is so invasive and so it has such a strong grip on numerous institutions within the United States that it's very hard to loosen that grip, to uproot those entrenched systems. This doesn't lessen our responsibility to try to do that. When we look at the aggregate of wars in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, United States support for Israel's wars against Gaza, Lebanon, where do we see anything that that would argue for continuing to pour our resources down the rat hole of military spending? And that is Kathy Kelly, anti-war activist Kathy Kelly. Today, a procession of cars and people near Kabul's airport carried long black, red, and green banners in honor of the Afghan flag, a banner that's becoming a symbol of defiance. Video from another protest showed a bleeding demonstrator with a gunshot wound. Unlocker, onlookers tried to carry him away. Meanwhile, for the victims of a powerful earthquake and tropical storm, um, Relief, pardon me, relief for the victims of a powerful earthquake and tropical storm began flowing more quickly into Haiti today. But the Caribbean nation's entrenched poverty, insecurity and lack of basic infrastructure were still presenting a huge challenge to getting food and urgent medical care to all those who need it. Private relief supplies and shipments from the U.S. government and others were arriving in the southwestern peninsula where the weekend quake struck, killing more than 2,100 people. But the need is extreme, made worse by the rain from Tropical Storm Grace, and people were growing frustrated with the slow pace. U.S. Army General Hank Taylor had this to say about the U.S. response. 80 yesterday, eight United States Army helicopters, three uh, CH-47 Chinooks, and five UH-60 Blackhawks from Southcom's JTF Bravo out of Honduras, repositioned to launch and support operations in support of Haiti earthquake operations. Those assets have already started moving disaster relief personnel and supplies and supported JTF Haiti's assessment of airfields and roads throughout the area. As you know, the USS Arlington is now underway and expected to arrive later this week to provide additional lift and medical capabilities and serve as another resource for the people of Haiti. Special tactics airmen assigned to the Special Operations Wing are currently augmenting the life-saving and humanitarian aid efforts in Haiti and are responsible for conducting various airfield surveys to to determine suitability for bringing in follow-on humanitarian aid via airlift. And uh, that is General Hank Taylor. A country, uh, meanwhile, a county in north central Florida has become the first in the state to impose an indoor mask mandate, setting up a potential battle with Governor Ron DeSantis as it wages war against COVID-19. The Alachua County order, effective today, requires masks to be worn inside all public spaces, with exceptions for those eating and drinking in restaurants. It'll remain in place for seven days, with potential one-week extensions for a total of 42 days. A A school board member in Tampa, another other school district that's having a similar problem had this to say. I think there may be some friction with parents' wishes related to the new plan, but we're going to help coach them through this. And it's for it's only 30 days. And while it may be uncomfortable, I get it. No one wants to wear a mask for those who uh, you know aspire not to. But sometimes we've got to do something that's greater for the community. And uh, that is the situation in Florida. The county's decision comes as the Delta variant has led to new COVID-19 measures across the country. Across the country, Many Florida school districts, including Alachua's, have defied Ron DeSantis' ban on mask mandates, even as the governor threatens to withhold funding. 
And in national news, President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden plan to get COVID-19 vaccine booster shots once they are cleared to take them. That's what the president said in an interview that's going to be aired today. The Biden administration announced yesterday that Americans will be able to get COVID-19 vaccine booster shots starting on September 20th, subject to authorization from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and sign off from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The plan is for every adult to get a booster shot eight months after you got your second shot. Now, there's some world leaders who say America shouldn't get a third shot until other countries got their first shot. I disagree. We can take care of America and help the world at the same time. America has donated more vaccine to other countries than every other country in the world combined. We're going to be the arsenal of vaccines to beat this pandemic as we were the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. Individuals would become eligible for their booster shot eight months after their second shot of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. Health officials said those who receive the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine may need boosters in the future, but more data, they say, is needed. Meanwhile, the prospects of booster shots are causing controversy. As the Delta variant rages around the world, a heated debate has arisen over whether public health officials should recommend those booster shots. On one side are global health officials who contend that available vaccines will be better used to inoculate high-risk people in poor nations where few have gotten the shots. On the other are leaders and health officials in wealthier countries who are setting aside doses for more vulnerable people who may need additional doses to protect them from the virus. A couple of days ago, Dr. Tedros Adnan of the World Health Organization urged that the wealthier countries hold back on their booster plans. It's critical to get first shots into arms and protect the most vulnerable before boosters are rolled out. The divide between the haves and have-nots will only grow larger if manufacturers and leaders prioritize booster shots over supply to low and middle income countries. The virus is evolving and it's not in the best interests of leaders just to focus on narrow nationalistic goals when we live in an interconnected world and the virus is mutating quickly. In fact, strong national leadership would be to fully commit to vaccine equity and global solidarity which would save lives and slow violence down. And that is Tedros Adnan. Meanwhile, another uh, official from the World Health Organization, Dr. Mike Ryan, said that giving out booster shots is sort of like this. The reality is right now today, if we think about this in in terms of an analogy, uh, we're planning to hand out uh, extra life jackets to people who already have life jackets while we're leaving other people to drown without a single life jacket. That's the reality. And that's Dr. Mike Ryan. And in state news, on August 17th, with less than one week in office, outgoing governor Andrew Cuomo granted 10 clemencies to people who are in New York state prisons or who have left New York City, uh, left prison and were granted um, commutations of their sentence. Since the start of 2020, though, more than 2,500 incarcerated New Yorkers have applied for clemency. Less than 1% or 10 total people of applicants have been granted that clemency. I spoke today with Narana Snipe Tucker, whose husband 
has been in a New York State prison for over 30 years. She says it's time for the governor to fulfill his promise of giving clemency and pardons to those, many of whom claim and have good evidence, were incarcerated wrongly. Governor, apparently on Monday he gave 10 clemencies for five individuals that were that are still inside and five pardons that are people that are already home. Is that enough? Absolutely not. He has over 2,500 applications where individuals apply for a clemency, such as myself and my husband, and you only gave 10. And now your whole tenure, you gave 36. And then I think it should be noted the governor was the one that initiated a new program to apply for clemency to make it easier for individuals inside, such as my husband, who's wrongfully convicted. If you can prove your innocence or you say that you're innocent, then you can apply for clemency. Well, his application's been in since 2017, I believe. What do you think is going on with the governor? From the time that he's been in To me, the governor is a power political. I don't understand you say one thing and you're doing totally opposite. To leave us lingering here in the onset of the pandemic, he felt better keeping those inside because they were the ones that were mass producing hand sanitizers, all that other type of um, PPE products that incarcerated individuals can't even use. Yeah, what's the situation in New York prisons as far as uh, COVID? That's the question that the governor needs to answer. Like, this is what you said that you would do, whereas we've had few people that passed away because they got COVID inside. There's no safety. There's no protection. My husband is in Otisville, and he just stated the other day that they're transferring inmates from one prison to another, and they're not quarantining them. Is there a problem with wrongfully convicted people in New York state jails and prisons? That is a major problem. It's a, it's a very big issue because you have people such as my husband that's been in 33 years. Last Monday, I witnessed Carlton Roman get released after 32 years. And then Christopher Ellis last Monday as well do 30 years. And it's because of the way the court system is set up where my motto is that you have a district attorney, you have a judge, and they all work for the same municipality. But yet these are black and brown people that are going away to prison for decades because of lies, withholding evidence from the defendant and his lawyer, and then therefore you're happy of just getting convicted, but yet you destroy the family or you're destroying families. What happened with your husband? My husband was wrongfully convicted in 1988. He was at a a location where people got shot. My husband was the only one that did not get shot because he got up and ran. And then the case was presented to a jury of not his peers, because that's what they like to say. And the prosecutor withheld a lot of information, and he was able to give his own spin on the case. And he came back with some guilty verdicts. However, he wasn't found guilty on none of the gun charges, which is the element of how these people got killed. But my husband was sentenced to 43 years to life in prison. Have the families stick together? The families talk to each other? Like rap and the families of the folks who are in prison under these conditions? Yes, we do, definitely. I started working with rap last year. Yes, we do stick together. We have each other's back. 
We're supportive of one another because this is not easy. Some of us are raising children. Some of us have grandchildren. And then financially, it's, it's a big burden. Your message to the governor? That I would ask that he looks into his heart and have compassion. Like my husband has been accused of something that he didn't do. Now you're being accused of something that you said you didn't do. But the difference is my husband is black and poor. You are a white man with money. You have politics behind you. We don't have that. So, again, we're just asking him to have a heart and some compassion. 33 years in prison for something you didn't do is a very long time. Narana Snipe Tucker is a member of RAP, Release Aging People from Prison. And finally, police arrested more than a dozen protesters blocking traffic and not listening to police in Brooklyn today after acts of civil disobedience to call attention to what demonstrators see as the state's failure. According to New York State, by the end of July, more than 114,000 people in the city applied for $2.7 billion in COVID-19 emergency rental, uh, pardon me, emergency rental relief program money. The federal money started flowing into state coffers in January. But as of August 9th, the state had distributed only about $100 million to landlords, alleviating the rental deaths of about 7,000 households. Elected officials who spoke at the protest and later attended a legislative hearing designed to hold the governor's office responsible addressed the incoming governor, Kathy Hochul. They said, the first thing on your agenda, Madam Governor, is making sure every single one of these folks and every single one of the tenants in the state of New York stay in their homes. That was said by State Senator Gustavo Gustavo. Rivera, who represents parts of the Bronx. Advocates say this, coupled with the looming eviction moratorium deadline at the end of the month, could be catastrophic for people who are behind on rent. And that's some of the news for Thursday, August 19th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>